Thank you for listening to the Crestview Baptist Church podcast. In the sermon that you're going to hear in just a moment, we did a little bit of a Bible study. And so there are parts where different folks read passages of Scripture. Unfortunately, they didn't have microphones, and so you can't really hear what they say. When it comes to a passage that someone else is reading, I will ask that person to read the particular passage. You may want to follow along with your Bible so that as we are reading the passage, you can read it as well. I hope you enjoy, and I hope you're blessed by the sermon that I titled, Why This Vision? A couple of summers ago, take it back a couple of years, there was a, um, I, I had a class, and in the class, I had to find a mentor. It was a, it was a class that um, I could have taken with a professor when it came around, but I was trying to hurry up and get done. And so I took it with a mentor during the summer. Um, I had to find a mentor, which was difficult enough because I wanted to, I wanted to do, do it with a particular person, but they weren't available um, at that time. And so I tried to find somebody else. Um, ended up having to get a mentor that was in the Birmingham area. Um, and, and so calling him on the phone once a week and trying to figure out when that would work out. And he was a, a associate pastor too. And so his uh, schedule would often conflict with things like funerals come up or specific ministry things happen kind of at the last minute. And so sometimes we would plan to talk to each other and then we couldn't. Uh, around that time, Carrie was um, in the hospital for a, for a procedure and or not in the hospital, but back and forth and having a procedure done. And so um, it was, it was kind of interesting days, to say the least. But over the course of that summer, God really was leading me to realize that it was time to start looking at what God's vision was for the church. And some people are just these visionary types that they, before they even take pastorate of a church, they just look at the building and suddenly they can see what could be. And and they've got this, I mean, it's just like, I don't know, it's, it's, it's almost like a sixth sense for what God wants to do in a place. And so they just see it happen. That's not the way it is with me. With me, I have to labor over it. I've got to pray hard. I've got to seek God's will. And I've got to really come step by step in the process. I think I see what's going on. And then God says, all right, n- no, you're, you're too focused on this little detail. Let me expand your vision a little bit. And so it's taken, it took me well over a year to kind of figure out where we need to go. And around that time is I'm starting to meet with church council and hearing their hearts and their input, hearing from folks that have been here for decades, I realized that part of our vision is going to encapsulate who we are today. God doesn't, God doesn't take, uh, take us and fashion us and design us a particular way just to completely use us in a totally different way. What he does is he takes and he fashions us and he molds us and he shapes us into who we need to be, who we are today step in that journey, right? In other words, God made me a speaker long before I felt like I could speak. 
I mean, I'm, I'm three years old and I'm walking up to people, shaking people and saying, how are you today? Okay. I'm, I'm not naturally the kind of person that, that felt like I was a speaker. But again, looking back, seeing what all God was doing, seeing how God was preparing me, I can point to specific things in my life and say, oh yeah, yeah, he was, he was making me that type of person. From the time that I was a toddler, he was making me that kind of person. From before I formed you in the womb, he tells Jeremiah, I knew you. And so this idea of having this vision, it had to connect with who we are in the present who we have been in the past and who we are in the present. But it can't just be there. Because if all we're doing is looking in the rearview mirror, <laughs> you can't see oncoming traffic, can you? The reason the rearview mirror is small and the field is big. What's in front of you is a lot more important than what's behind you. But you still need to know what's behind you. You still need to be able to see what's back there or what's to your sides and your side mirrors. Those things aren't unimportant. But the biggest job is to avoid what's in front of you, right? And so I knew that this vision not only had to encapsulate who we have been in the past and who we are today, it had to encapsulate where God wants us to go. But then I thought of something else. You know, you're driving. How many of you drive in cornfields? Probably not the best idea for our cars, is it? Some of you have trucks that could handle it. Malcolm's truck looks like he's been through a few cornfields in it. Yeah. Looks like you were a little bit speedy in those cornfields too, by the way. Um, but we need not only to recognize who God has made us and who God wants us to become, but also recognize the needs of our community. What kind of roads are we traveling? Where are we going? What are, what are the types of people that are in this community? And so as, as we sought as a church council to really nail down what this vision was, I had some ideas in my head, but I hadn't cemented it yet. I knew the general direction. I knew the basic thrust. I knew what the scripture had to say about the church. And we'll talk about that in a second. But I also knew we had to understand the people around us, the community around us. And so we began to take these things into account. We did a demographic study. The State Board of Missions did a demographic study of five miles around our church. And we looked at what types of people are here. Now, who, who would you say are the number one type of folk? What, what, how would you describe Prattville? Go ahead and throw some things out. Let's see. Right around this church, how would you describe the folks? Old, young, rich, poor, mixed, okay? Like 50-50 mix or predominantly something? Yeah. Okay, so a mix of old and young, okay. What else do you think? Some wealthier than others. Predominantly, would you say that this is a rich area or a pretty well-off area or very poor? What would you say? No? Yeah? Middle class, okay. All right, what about education? A lot of snobby, uh, educated folks or people dumb as a, a, a box of rocks. <laughs> You know, some of that is both, right? You know, sometimes the really educated folks are dumb as a box of rocks. Yeah. Carrie says, I'm one of those that <laughs> ain't got no common sense, but I'm doing better than I used to. Okay. I'm doing better. Hey, hey, it's a low bar to clear. Okay. <laughs> Pravel is actually predominant, predominantly white. Um, and it's got two basic groups. It's weird. Most communities are focused in one area and then everything else is less. Like you've got a ton of young families or you've got a ton of middle-aged families or you've got a ton of old folks. 
There, there's, there's not really a whole lot of uh, mixture between the two. Pravel is like bookends. You either got young families that are just starting out, or you've got older parents that, are, that have just gotten rid of their kids or are now living life with their kids having families of their own. So you've either got your empty nesters or you've got your young starting families. There are some military families in the area too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of retired military. And so what you basically have are almost like two different cities. You almost have these two different groups of people that are all in the same town where either you're young or you're old. That doesn't, not everybody's one of those. There are some middle folks, but demographically speaking, those are the two biggest groups. Folks with toddlers and folks with empty nests. And so it, it's kind of interesting that we have that double dynamic going on. Two different groups with very different needs. Speaking of affluence, Prattville is actually pretty affluent. The state median income is somewhere around, if I'm not mistaken, around, is it 47000 a year? Something like that across the state, I believe. Prattville, the median income is around 76000 a year, and it's growing. By 2023, it will be over 80000 a year. Some of you are saying, man, <laughs> where's my 80000 a year? That'd be nice. The point is, we're becoming more affluent. And part of, that, part of that relates to education. Because by 2023, one out of three people in Prattville that are, that are old enough, one out of three adults in Prattville will have a master's degree or higher. This is a community that is becoming, well, it's becoming a lot of good things. But what it's not becoming is more religious. About one out of three you'll find in church on any given Sunday. That's not to mean that some people don't think religion is important. That's not to mean that this town's full of heathens, but this town is full of heathens, just like any town. There are folks that need Jesus. And I recognize that if God is going to call us to be his church in Prattville, Alabama, that he must have uniquely gifted us and given us some things that we are that our community needs us to be and called us to become more not only of what's good for us, but what's good for them as well. It's a balance. Now, that doesn't mean that we should just drop the whole gospel thing and just do community service. Don't hear me say that. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, uh, if that happens, vote me out and get you a pastor that'll hold the gospel central because that's what we need most is the gospel of Jesus Christ because it doesn't matter if you're rich or old or poor, uh, uh, young or old, whether you're doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what race or ethnicity you are. It doesn't matter. The gospel can break down all those barriers. The gospel can reach the heart of any man, woman, boy, girl. But God's not going to put us in this community without giving us some unique tools and resources and capabilities to help us reach this community with Christ. He's not going to put us here. He put us somewhere else. He'd have built this church somewhere else if this wasn't the place he wanted us. Amen? Can we agree with that? All right. So we've got the needs of the community. We've got who we are as a body of Christ. And we've got the biblical model of the church. When the Bible talks about the church, now we're going to dig into the scripture a bit. I wanted to set those things up first 
But when we were talking about this with the church council, we talked about the scripture first and then looked at our surroundings and saw how scripture and our surroundings kind of meshed together. And that's, that's where, where we began to develop this vision. But I wanted to talk about those things first because I wanted you to see there are some real needs in our community. There are some real things that God has gifted us with. And he's given us a model of not only what the church is supposed to do, but what we are supposed to be. So when the Bible talks about the church, it talks about two aspects. It talks about its character, its nature, and it talks about its actions. So you want to dig into some scripture with me? I'm going to need some volunteers to read passages because we're going to read a lot of scripture in the rest of this. So uh, if you have your Bibles, um, turn with me. Can I get someone to go ahead and turn to the Gospel of Mark chapter 16? Can I get someone to volunteer to do that? And Okay, Robert, you're going to get that one. Um, let's have someone in Luke chapter 24. Okay, Daryl. Um, John chapter 20. And I'll tell you the verses in a minute. Malcolm, um, we'll do that. Carrie, would you turn to Acts 1? Okay. When God sets the mission of the church, he does so in five places. And it's no, it's no um, coincidence that four of the five are gospels. And the fifth one is the sequel to a gospel, the book of Acts. It's no, it's no miracle. It's no coincidence that God decides to do that. He does that because... Jesus is giving the church, his, his apostles, his disciples, a mandate as he is leaving the earth. So, what's that mandate? Well, we call this the Great Commission. Normally, we go to Matthew chapter 28 and we say, there's the Great Commission. But it's interesting because there are five different texts in which Jesus lays out the mission of the church. And we're going to read all five of them together. So let's read them together. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 28, and then we'll go on to each person from there. So Matthew 28, listen to God's word. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. The second passage is in Mark chapter 16, verses 15 and 16. Robert, I believe you have that one. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Okay? Luke tells us the commissioning of Jesus, of his disciples, in Luke 24, verses 45 through 49. Daryl? Okay. John chapter 20, verses 21 through 23. Malcolm. All right? And then finally... Luke, um, Luke was writing a book to Theophilus about the life of Jesus, the gospel of Luke. But then he wrote a second book about the church, the early days of the church. That's the book of Acts. Carrie, read for us Acts 1, verses 7 and 8. All right. So we have their five great commission texts. In Matthew, he says, go therefore and make disciples. Some of you have heard me say this before. I feel like the power of that verse isn't in this idea of as you go or going therefore or even a command to go and then a separate command to make disciples. I feel like the command is to go make disciples. 
In other words, to intentionally get up and go make disciples. That's what Jesus has commanded his church to do. In Mark chapter 16, he says it very plainly. He says, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. Don't, there's, there's no question that God is sending us out to proclaim his gospel, right? Now, Luke, Luke is interesting because the command in Luke is not to go preach or go make disciples. The command in Luke is to stay put. Why? Stay until you receive the Holy Spirit. And then in John, he, he gives a little bit different command. Receive the Holy Spirit. So you're to stay, receive the power from God, and when you get that power, then you go proclaim the gospel and make disciples in all the world. And then Acts 1.8, it's not even a command. He states it in a future tense as though this is what's going to happen. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to do it in your city, Jerusalem. You're going to do it in your region, Judea. You're going to do it in a much larger region, Samaria, and then you're going to go out to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts tracks that, by the way. They start in Jerusalem, then they span out to Judea and into Samaria, and then eventually you see Paul on missionary journeys all over the known world until finally he ends up in Rome. Of course, it took him appealing to Caesar and his case coming before Caesar for him to be put to death in Rome for him to get there. But hey, you know, what's my life considering my mission This idea of what the church does is very simple. We go in God's power and proclaim God's name to God's creation. Okay? That's it. If you're looking for some mystical thing that's hidden beneath the surface that you got to really dig for and you really got to have advanced degrees to understand, I'm sorry, I can't help you. The Bible is just very clear and plain. Now, we can obfuscate this. We can make it, uh, we can make it, we muddy up the waters and make it hard to see, but the Bible makes it very plain to see. We are called in God's power to proclaim God's name among God's creation, period. Now, you say, okay, well, that's the mission of our church. Let's go home, right? Kind of. That might be the mission of our church, but what this church has to answer is how do we do that in Prattville? Any church does that. Every church should be doing that, right? Some churches don't. They fall on their job. In fact, I might argue that some people that call themselves churches aren't churches because the centrality of the gospel has been lost. But any church anywhere in the world can fulfill that basic mission. But what is it that makes Crestview special? Why did God bring this group of people into this place at this time to fulfill this mission? And how do we need to go about it? And that, that's where this vision was brought out. But it's not only important to know what the church ought to do, it's also important to know who the church ought to be. And so we began to look at passages that describe the church. You know, there's several different words that describe the church in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul describes the church this way. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus... So we have this church as being those who are sanctified. Now, now that's a, that's a nice theological term. What's that mean? It means made righteous. The sanctification process is us becoming more and more and more godlike. And he's saying, you who have been sanctified in Christ. It is in some sense a past term because God has wrought our redemption. 
He has purchased us from slavery to sin. And so there's a past tense to it, but there's also a present tense to it in which he is currently sanctifying us, currently dealing with us, currently growing us, currently maturing us in our faith. And one day, there's a future tense in which God will complete his sanctification and we will be holy, not just be becoming more holy. That's the end goal. This sanctification, it's not just a one-time deal. But it's an ongoing process that we will experience until that glorious day when he finally says it is finished. And he's not just talking about his work on the cross. He's talking about his work in us. So they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. They are called to be saints together with those called together. Called what? To be saints. That's that word hagios I was mentioning earlier this morning. That word that Paul took and said, well, it, 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 In our culture, it means one thing, but I see a much deeper meaning. And so I'm going to use it with this idea, not only of being separated from other things, but but being holy and pure to God. He was taking an Old Testament idea that was often applied to the priest, to the temple, and he was applying it to the individual Christian. In fact, the priest, the high priest, wore a band across his head, gold band, and inscribed on it, were the words, Kadosh Ladonai, holy to the Lord. That's the idea that Paul says every church member has. We, we may as well wear gold bands that say Kadosh Ladonai, holy to the Lord. Hagios Christu, if you want to put it in Greek. You can put it in whatever language you want, but holy to the Lord. And then not only called to be saints together, but together with whom? To, with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So not only are they the ones called out by Jesus Christ, they are the ones who call upon Jesus Christ. That's how they got sanctified. That's how they became saints. Because they called on him who is able to save them from their sins. In Ephesians chapter 5, he talks about the church. What's interesting is he's talking about marriage, but he uses as an example what Christ does with the church. Somebody, Ephesians chapter 5, somebody read verses 20, let's see, where does he start this? Ah, Start in in 22, read through 24. Who's got that? Let's get Miss Barbara to read. I'm going to try to get different folks. Okay, so just hold there for a second. I know... Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to talk about the husband-wife aspect of this so much as I'm going to say he's using as an example Christ in the church. And what is the church compared to Christ? What does the church do to Christ? What does this passage say? Well, what do we do? Submit, right? Okay, so what does Christ do to the church? Keep reading, Miss Barbara, verses 25 through 32. All right, so what does Christ do to the church. Several things. He sanctifies it. What else? Cherishes, loves, right? So we have this relationship. Now the church is not just this group of people that's just doing what Jesus wants. This is a group of people that Christ is loving and in that love we are submitting to him and he is sanctifying us. You see that relationship that's going on between the Christ and church? No wonder Paul uses this as an example of what marriage ought to look like. Because that kind of relationship is the kind of relationship that that works. And not only works, but man, it really works. Right? Am I am I just am I just weird? Am I just seeing stuff that's see, because because when I look at this passage, I see a love 
between Christ and church that, that, that gives me insight as to who we ought to be. Are we the church that's submitting to God? Are we a church that's seeing God bring sanctification and holiness into our lives? It's who we ought to be, right? That's who we ought to be because we're the church. And it's not just, again, this is general. This can apply to any church. But how does it apply in our circumstance? What ways do we need to submit that another church may or may not need to, but we know we need to? How can we submit to Christ right here in our community with our folks so that we can do his work? Do, do you see where this is starting to come together? This isn't just an idea of let's, let's have a pep rally and talk about how great things can be and then let's not do anything else about it. This has to involve a change in who we are. Not from who we are to completely different people, but from who we are to who we need to become. We need to take the next step in our Christian maturity and become the people that God has designed us to be. And I believe that this idea of being God's family is a great way to encapsulate that because in a family, well, you're committed to growing together. You have a family, that's, that's where kids grow up. That's where parents face all kinds of crazy situations they've never had to face before. I remember our babies, every single one of them created just, they were just very creative in really confusing us. <laughs> with James, it was certain problems, but with Mitchell, it was others. With Brantley, it was others. And with Savannah, it was others. All, all introducing things that we had never seen before as parents. And now we're on, on the verge of having a teenager. And oh my goodness, there is a whole host of problems coming. I've heard, I've heard enough horror stories. I don't need any. Okay. Yes. Thank you. I appreciate that. But that's part of family, isn't it? Part of family is growing together. Part of family is giving someone a place where they can make mistakes and still be loved. Part of family is learning how to do things that you've never had to do before. I tell you what, 11 years ago, if you had asked me what signs to look for for an ear infection in a child, I'd have looked at you like you were crazy. Now I know. Now I can tell you before they start hurting. Carrie, Carrie's even better than me. Like she sees them start to pick at the ear and she's like, yep, that ear's infected. <laughs> we may as well go ahead and start doing the eardrops now. She's saying no, but... Gotcha. See? See? Some eardrops are antibiotics, by the way. So. <laughs> you, you might want to move, Daryl. <laughs> Family is a place where we can grow together and we can make mistakes and we can have disagreements, but we can still love. Family is a place where the goal is to grow up. The goal is to see those arrows shot from your quiver and not just sitting back there for 20, 30, 40 years. Something's wrong with a kid that doesn't leave home when they get old enough. No, you want to see your kid grow and develop and mature to the point where you could send them out into the world and you know he's thick-headed about the right things. Where you know she is stubborn as a mule, but that's going to serve her well because she knows what to be stubborn about. Some of y'all are like, really? Yeah, that's, that's true. That's very true. That's, you see, God has, God has made us a church out of love, but he's made us a church for a purpose too. And this idea of being his family, being a place where we are adopted by faith, belonging together, making disciples, 
That's our way of trying to submit to him and say, Lord, whatever you want us to do, whoever you want us to talk to, wherever you want us to go, whatever ways in which you want us to serve you, we are willing, we are able. Now, maybe we can't do everything we want to do. That's okay. We can do everything he's called us to do. And maybe not in ourselves. Maybe that means we've got to stretch. Maybe that means we have to grow. Maybe that means that we have to, we have to learn new skills. Maybe it means that we have to be uncomfortable and do something difficult. But he's given us everything we need. We talk about things like fellowship in the church. I think of Acts 2. Often held up as a model of what life should be like in the church. But it's very true. There's fellowship with one another. Yeah, they're bringing all their goods and they're sharing all their goods as people have need and that's wonderful. They end up having to stop doing that though after Acts chapter 4. We don't read of that again. Do you know why? Because we need people to go out and make more money. (laughs) We can't share with each other if we don't do anything. So we have to engage and work in the world. That's a good thing. But it's through those resources, through those talents, energy that we have to where we can bring those resources together and use them together for God's glory. And whether you're a tent maker like Paul, or whether you're vocational in ministry, or whether you don't do ministry for a dime, whether you spend your money going to minister to folks, visiting people's homes, taking care of their needs, wherever the case may be, whatever whatever the job that God has for you to do, whatever your role in this church happens to be, or your many roles, some of you have more than one role, but whatever those are, We use them together for his glory. And the picture of the church isn't just a church that brings all the money and puts it all into one pot and then spends from there. The the idea of a church is people who are connected together to do God's work. We're going to talk about that a lot next Sunday morning, that belonging together. That's why we're having communion in that service, because we do belong together. And communion's a great picture of that. So we have this idea of fellowship, this koinonia, is the Greek word. You may have heard that before. We also have this idea of witness, of testimony. Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is talking about the end times, and one of the things he throws in there is that the gospel will be proclaimed as a testimony to all the nations. Mark chapter 13. Somebody turn to Mark 13. Somebody that hasn't read yet. Let's get someone else to turn to Romans chapter 12. So who's got Mark 13? Okay, Jim's got Mark 13. Who's going to get Romans 12? Larry, okay. So in Mark 13, we see this idea of witness testimony. Uh, uh, There's going to be a time where you're called before the magistrates. You're called before officials. What does Jesus say in Mark 13 verses 9 through 13, Jim? All right, so what is he talking about on the witness there? Does he just say, uh, make sure you have a good, well-prepared statement? He says, don't worry about what you're going to say. Why? I'll tell you what to say. God's going to give you the right words in that moment. So don't worry about it. He'll lead you. You know what that tells me? That tells me he wants you to witness. But it also tells me that this isn't supposed to be a burden. This is an outgrowth of who we are as a church. Who we are as the called out ones. Who we are as the body of Christ. Speaking of the body of Christ, Romans chapter 12, Paul is talking about the gifts that we have as a body. Larry, read chapter Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. There you go. So, so what, is, what is Paul saying? 
He's saying that our gifts complement each other. Some of you are really good at certain things that I'm not. I'm good at things that you're not. And together, we can be good at all things, right? Some of y'all really, really, really are great at loving people. You just, you, I can't explain it. You're just, you're like a walking hug. You bring comfort and peace. I'm not that kind of person. If you need someone to shout the truth, (laughs) I'm your guy. But if you need someone to give you a hug and make you feel better, that's not quite who I am. Now, I can try to hug you and I can try to be there for you and help you feel better, but that's hard for me to do. Not for some of you. Some of you can make cards that just bring smiles to people's faces. Some of you can, some of you can arrange things and organize things in marvelously effective ways. Not all of us have the same gifts, but our gifts complement one another. That's why God's brought us together. Not only are we the body of Christ with these gifts that relate with each other, that complement each other, we're also a temple. We're a dwelling place of God. He talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens. Talking about Christ bringing us together as one. But you are fellow citizens with saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So we have Christ as the cornerstone of this building of the church in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also, he's not only cornerstone, he's also the architect. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So God is not only the one that makes us fit together, he is the one that's building us up. We are his temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. It used to be a temple in Jerusalem with a giant veil that blocked everybody from entering God's direct presence, where only one guy could go one time a year to make sacrifices, and he had to wear a rope on his leg so that if he died, nobody else trying to go in to get him, they could just pull him out. We go from that to a torn veil and direct access to God, not only in one place, but us being the place where God dwells. We are the bride of Christ We read a few weeks ago, Revelation chapter 19, where Christ takes his bride as the marriage supper of the Lamb. Talk about a good meal. That that being the bride of Christ puts us in unique relationship to him. What I want you to see in all of these things is that we are not just a group of people that are thrown together trying to figure out our way. We are a group that God has brought together. He's given us a mission. He's given us a vision of how to complete that mission. And if we're doing it right, church, if we're being God's family, then we're taking that adoption and we're finding new folks to adopt. Introducing new people to this God who has saved us from our sins, who who brought us to life when we were dead and did it by his grace, did it for his glory. If we are being God's family, then we're together. All of us, all committed together to doing the work that God has called us to do and to helping equip one another and build one another up and grow one another as disciples of Christ who are desperate to see God's work done, to see new disciples carry on that mission. If we are the people that God has called us to be, then I am completely convinced that this church 
has a future that we have not begun to dream about. And instead of reliving yesterday, we'll be able to anticipate tomorrow. Does that mean we forget yesterday? No, no. But it's time to create some tomorrows so the next generation has more to build on. Pray with me. Father, when we talk about building our future, when we talk about this vision that you've given us for this church, we recognize the, the, who we are in Christ, what you have done through Jesus Christ in every one of our lives and in us corporately as a body of Christ. We recognize that you have not just brought us here for us, but you've brought us here for you. You've not just brought us here to, to, uh, celebrate what you've done. You've brought us here to work. When we become saved, you don't give us sandals and a Hawaiian t-shirt to sit on the beach in a recline chair and enjoy the waves. You give us work boots and a hard hat, put us to work. So Father, we commit ourselves to you tonight to be the people that you want us to be. God, maybe, maybe we've been trying to do that and we just need your help to continue. Maybe we've been doing that and we're tired. We're worn down. We're weak. Maybe we're just beginning to see the possibilities and that there is a brighter future ahead, but we don't know how to get there. Father, whatever position we're in, would you help us? Your word says that you've given us everything we need for godliness. Would you give us what we need to be your servants, to be godly people in your world for your glory? Would you give us what we need to complete this mission of taking your gospel into the world around us? Would you help us be God's family, adopted by faith, belonging together, making disciples? Would you help that not only be a sentence put on a wall somewhere, stuck in a bulletin, but would you write those words on our heart and we may grow in our maturity of faith and fulfill your mission day by day? God, change us to the people you want us to be. Help us be good parents, good children, good spouses, good teachers, good workers, good employers. Help us be good retirees, good shoppers, good neighbors. Help us be your servants. And you receive all the glory and praise that you're due because of who we are and what we do in you. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen.